0: Every Reformation Sunday we do what we call a biographical sermon, so a little bit in the spirit of Hebrews 11. Uh, You may know that in the the book of Hebrews, the author is is seeking to uh, stir up the church. She's shrinking back in the mission of God, uh, and and the, the author is trying to stir up the church to stand for Christ no matter the cost, even if you lose everything. Stand for Christ. And, and throughout the book, what he tries to do is hold up Jesus. Uh, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's, he's uh, the, the, a better high priest. He provides a better sacrifice. A, he brings in a better covenant. And he's trying to hold up theological reality of Christ being supreme. And then in chapter 11, he turns to a list full of people as examples who lived out the faith. And uh, what the the people then provide is the theology that he's just talked about with legs on it, right? It's it's living out this theology. Because our theology is never meant to be just theoretical, something we just simply agree to. But it's what we would call functional theology. It actually puts legs on and lives out, right? And so that's actually one of the benefits of, of biography, Christian biography, is uh, we not only want to believe the right things, but see them lived out. And Christian biography has the way of doing that. And so the author then turns to the, 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 the list of people in the Faith Hall of Fame, chapter 11 of Hebrews, and then chapter 12, what he calls all those people, the cloud of witnesses. He paints the picture as the, the reader uh, on a race, in a racetrack, with all those witnesses, in the, in the stands, cheering on the saints, who are the readers. That's the metaphor he uses. And what are they cheering them on with? Like, no, you got, you got the strength to do this. You can make it to the, the end of the line. That's not his point. It's Christ is worth it. Hold fast to Christ. He is the anchor for your soul. He will get you to the end. And so that's the way we want to think about, it as we kind of do biographical sermons, is that it's not to exalt a person, it's to put theolo- like, it's theology with legs on it so that we see, oh, that holding that reality of Christ and living that out is a powerful thing, and God let it stir our hearts. So two theological realities that uh, really drove who we're going to think about today, we're going to think about Brother Andrew uh, from this text, uh, two theological realities that he held on that drove him to do the ministry that he did. Uh, And these, again, are not just theoretical things that he agreed with, but what we see in his life how then those impacted why he did the things he did, which we'll hear about. Uh, The first one comes in uh, verses 9 and 10 of Philippians 2 there. uh, After Jesus... Humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just the reality that Jesus is reigning as the king and every knee shall bow before King Jesus drove uh, Brother Andrew, that had a deep impact on him, and we'll see a, a point in his life where that actually really took hold uh, later on. The second that we see in this text uh, is later on in verses 15 and 16, uh, that you may be, be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you, here's the phrase, shine as light in the world. Uh, Brother Andrew really had a deep conviction that the church was to be the light in the world, shining the light of King Jesus. So that's how these two realities work together. Jesus is reigning as king, and the church is to shine that light in the world. Now, in particular, that phrase in verse 15, uh, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, is very important. Uh, Brother Andrew held a strong conviction that when the church is pressed, Being persecuted, our temptation is to flee the darkness, to get out of way of danger. Brother Andrew always had a message, stay if you can. Because we're the lights of the world. If all the lights leave the darkness, when the oppression gets deep and all the lights leave, what do we have left? We are to stay. And if you lose your life, you lose your life. Be a light for Christ. And that was part of his message, and uh, it really impacted a lot of people. But then he believed that, therefore, he must go and strengthen the church so that she can be a light. Yeah, All right, so let's just uh, jump in. We're going to jump into Brother Andrew's uh, story. So the first part is just more overview. Uh, With limited time, we're going to be doing an overview, and then we'll we'll dip in a little bit to what drove him, uh, how this thing actually started. Uh, So we can go to the slides here. Uh, Here you see a picture of Brother Andrew. This is uh, him older in life. Uh, His nickname is called the God's god's smuggler which if you don't know why that is it will become apparent shortly um, may eleventh, 1928 uh, and if you see the date there september twenty-seventh, two 2022 so he just died just over a month ago at the age of 94. so we'll go to the next slide just so you have a context here of of who he was uh, there i could not find pictures of his wife when she was younger so there's, there's, we really have very little information about Corey. That's his wife. Their actual last name was Vanderbilt. Uh, that's how you would pronounce that is my understanding. So Corey Vanderbilt, that's her on uh, his left there. Uh, they're obviously older at that point. They're they married in 1958 for 15, uh, or 59 years. She died in 2018, so fairly recently. Uh, as well. Uh, Again, we don't know a whole lot about her, but she must have been an amazing woman. Uh, In one of his books, uh, he talks about how he was trying to think through, how am I going to propose to this woman? Uh, So he's like, "What, what should I say to her? Corey, will you marry me? I'll be gone for months on end. I won't be able to write to you. You won't know where I am. And if I don't come back, you'll never hear the story of what happened to me. And we won't have hardly any money and we'll live above a tool shed that my family owns. What do you think? <laughs> but God was working in her, and she accepted it. And she became married and was a vital, vital part of the mission, right? A different, in a different way, but she cared for the home. They had five kids, three boys, two girls. And uh, she cared for the home, made it a place of rest and a place of peace as he returned from uh, the field uh, for caring for the persecuted church. And uh, that's, that's Corey, wonderful, uh, wonderful woman. As much as we know. On the bottom right there is a picture of Corey Ten Boom. This is just to give you a little bit of context of where uh, Brother Andrew was from, the, the people that he knew. So they were both born in Holland. Corey Ten Boom, we considered a couple years ago, she was born in 1892. Uh, she, if you remember her story, we don't have time to go into it. But they later ran in, together and did ministry together. Uh, Corey Ten Boom joined uh, Brother Andrew in smuggling Bibles at one point, older in life. She's obviously older than he is uh, by some 36 years or so. Uh, one quote there, uh, underneath uh, where it says Corey Ten Boom, uh, the safest place on earth is in the will of God. Now, what's interesting about that statement, if you read uh, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, she talks about Betsy telling her this. This was uh, right before they got uh, caught by the Nazis uh, for hiding Jews in the home. Uh, Betsy told her this, that the safest place to be on earth is in the will of God. And So Corey would then share that with the world. And uh, Brother Andrew, in an interview, uh, they asked him later, they said, were you ever scared? He said, no, I, I, I was not afraid because, and then he quotes this very thing. So uh, he doesn't give credit to Betsy. I'm assuming that's where it, it kind of funneled through that. So it just gives a little bit of context. These are this the type of people that uh, he knew the rea- very reality is that Jesus really is reigning as king and that we as God's people are to shine the light of Christ in the world. That will call us into dangerous situations, but by being in the will of God, that is the safest place on earth. Even if it costs you your life, your safety, your reputation, being in God's will is the safest place on earth. We'll go to the next slide. Uh, this, this slide covers more of what what Brother Andrew is best known for, which is smuggling Bibles, or sneaking Bibles into dangerous uh, territory where where it was illegal to have Bibles. Uh, Primarily when that started, this was in communist uh, countries uh, between the years of 1957 to 1967, uh, which is when he writes the book called God's Smuggler. So he would take uh, Bibles into countries like Yugoslavia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, uh, Russia, Hungary, Albania, Cuba—all uh, countries that you could not uh, have Bibles—and um, so that's where he got the nickname of God's smuggler. Uh, this book is a riveting first account first-person account of of that mission Uh, called God Smuggler written in 1967 Uh, it's now sold over 10 million copies in 35 languages because it is just gripping uh, of what God did uh, through uh, this ministry Uh, over the last 15 years I've personally read it three times and I listened to it once it just and it always just grabs your attention so if you have the time it is well worth reading uh, I, I can't remember what it is, 280 pages or something like that. Uh, and, and if you listen to the book, it's, it's, it's great to listen to. They have a, a youth version uh, that is, uh, I'm sure, just as good. One of our daughters is reading it now. Uh, but what this book did in 1967, it really brought awareness to the West of what Christians were experiencing uh, in the communist countries. And so with that, that that's a very good thing. The church in the West became aware of the, the issues that our brothers and sisters are facing. Uh, but the downside of that is that the West, the church, began to think of Brother Andrew as a hero. And he didn't like that. He actually called this book a curse because, because of this. Because people all of a sudden, what happens when you hold this person up as a hero is that it puts them in this elite club that, oh, well, Brother Andrew can do that. That's not for me. I can't do that. And so one of his messages, he was regularly remind people that he had a sixth grade education. So he was in Holland, he was 12 years old when the Nazi occupation started in Holland. And that was the end of his schooling. You know, They didn't let the kids go to school and he never returned. So he's, he's like, look, I, I'm the son of a blacksmith, which was not very, looked highly uh, in the culture at the time. So I'm a son of a blacksmith sixth grade education, I have a bad back, I had no funding, I didn't even have a strategy or a big plan. I just went on a trip and learned the needs of the church, and I I decided I can go serve. That's all I did. And so he constantly was going against that, and this is the quote, I'm not an evangelical stuntman. I'm just an ordinary guy. What I did, anyone can do. If you believe in Jesus and you can move, you can do the mission. And you'll see exactly what his mission was there in the middle of the picture or in the middle of the slide is the picture of the blue Volkswagen that uh, was gifted to him by a, a Christian family uh, to do that uh, to do the mission that's the the first uh, they call it the miracle car uh, for all the miles that it traveled and then that's uh, brother Andrew in his younger years on the right there uh, preaching some some sermon there but let's go to uh the next slide, but I mean, I guess even before we, we ought to at least just think about it. sometimes uh, just the reality of what he's trying to get at there uh, in terms of being, having sixth grade education, son of a blacksmith, bad back, no money, no plan. Uh, we ought not so quickly to pass off any burdens that we have flowing around in our heart as if, well, I don't have the right education, or I don't have the right relationships, or I don't have the right funding. That's, that's the way the world tends to think, right? Like we, don't, we are not bound by those things. And if God gives you a burden, raise that, think about that, pray about that, let's, let's ask God. Maybe God is stirring up certain burdens within us as a church to, to be a part of the great mission of God. And we don't want to just look past it just because we don't have the right education and such. But anyhow, after that book comes out in 1967, uh, his cover was essentially blown, Right, So now he can't do the same sort of mission uh, in the communist countries. It's a little bit, uh, he's kind of now this well-known figure. Uh, Now the work continued on because he had some other people had rallied around him. But uh, he wasn't able to really go as much. But this this group then uh, eventually organized to be called Open Doors. It's a ministry that still exists today, Uh, particularly primarily, serves the persecuted church in 60-plus countries around the world. Uh, and over the years, it's developed into different ways. They basically try to understand what the persecuted church needs and serve them however they can, whether that's resources, training, whatever it is. They come in and they try to help the um, persecuted church. Uh, and in 2013, at a conference, uh, Brother Andrew says this about the Open Doors name, uh, the quotes up there. <clears> he <throat> says, the Open Doors definition is simply... There is no closed door. Every door is open since Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And if you know of any door that you say, Andrew, I know a door that you cannot go through, tell me publicly. And I can tell you how you can, or I will tell you how you can get in there, provided you don't insist on coming back. See, that was his heartbeat. He says, no, we can get in any country as long as you're willing to go and die for the sake of the gospel. This was, this was uh, his heartbeat. This is the way he, he thought about things. Uh, but so after 67, what is he going to do now? Because he couldn't really go into communist countries as much. So he realized, well, there's other places I can go that the hurting church is. So he spent the, roughly the next 40 to 50 years in the Middle East Uh, serving the persecuted church there in a different type of persecution. So a lot of what he was going into was a lot of civil war. Went to Lebanon a couple times a year for a 15-year war that was going on. Uh, Spent a lot of time ministering uh, in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And what he would do uh, and his friends, uh, they would serve on both sides of the conflict, of this Palestinian-Israeli conflict, because it wasn't a political thing at all is serving the persecuted church. It's recognizing that there's a hurting church in Palestine and there's a hurting church in Israel. And they're caught in this crossfire. And so what that would look like today, if if Brother Andrew was still here, able to kind of do the ministry, if you think about Russia, Ukraine, he would be going to Russia, and the very next day, he'd show up in Ukraine serving the church. That, that's what he was about. I'm here to serve the church. I'm not here for a political purpose. I'm not even trying to change anything politically necessarily at all. I'm here to serve the persecuted church where they're hurting and where they have needs. So one of the things I love about that, though, is if you think about 1967, this book blows up. I mean... The guy could have had opportunities galore, speaking opportunities, more book opportunities. He could have legitimately probably just sat back, collected royalties, and been comfortable. But what's he do for the next 40, 50 years? He goes right in back into the battle. And I love that. Why? Because Jesus is king. That's why he's going to go back into it. And we, as God's people, are supposed to shine the light of the world. And so rather than a retirement plan that America presents to us, his retirement plan was going into countries that were dangerous all the way up until he couldn't travel anymore. 2004, he writes this book called Light Force, a Stirring Account of the Church Caught in the Middle East Crossfire. Uh, this is, uh, again, a riv- very riveting book uh, of the first person account of, of his ministry in the Middle East. Um, it's very informative if you're not uh, up on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and what that was all about, especially how the church experienced that. Uh, this, this book is an excellent resource for that. I learned a ton, ton reading it. I, this, this is the part of Aunt Brother Andrew's ministry that's very way less, uh, way less known uh, to us. Usually his Bible, uh, Bible smuggling is much more uh, talked about. But it's very challenging because uh, one of the things he does, if we go to the next slide, uh, he, was, he was accustomed to meeting with anybody that would talk to him. And he would meet with uh, radical Muslim leaders. So he would meet with leaders of Hamas, Hezbollah, PLO, uh, the PLO, uh, the Taliban. Uh, he, he would go to churches and encourage like the church, you need to have Osama bin Laden on your prayer list. Are you, do you want him dead more than you want him like, coming to the faith? And uh, he was just very radical in this sense, and it would just risk everything uh, to go meet with these leaders. Um, and befriend them first, and then he would preach the gospel to them. He, would, he was invited to a, a very extreme uh, Muslim university, uh, and he, because he had befriended these guys when they were in their need, uh, some, uh, especially in Palestine, they were mistreated often, and so he would go in and care for them, and then they would invite him in these settings to, to preach the gospel because he, he demonstrated a Christianity to them that they had not heard of. And so this quote here on the right, uh, he says, There are no terrorists. There are only people who need Jesus. As long as we see any person, Muslim, communist, terrorist, as an enemy, well, then the love of God cannot flow through us to reach them. This was a, a strong part of his message. If, I, if it's always them, are, them against me or me against them and they're my enemy, how can the, the love of Christ truly flow to them? And I don't think this is only a message in terms of big picture, or like big dramatic things, but there's just people in our own lives, right? People, co-workers, family members, who we are very quick to view as enemy. And we, we sort of cut off the love of God being able to flow through us to them. And so he spent a lot of time, it sounds like, from my understanding, is really trying, asking God to shape his heart. Give me love for these people, a true love so they can experience the gospel through me. Uh, but he was bold. He would take he would take all those leaders. He would take copies of the Bible. He would take copies of God's smuggler and bring them in, He'd uh, just be handing out Bibles to them. Uh, but we can go to the next slide, uh, and this is Brother Andrew in his retirement years. Uh, I love these two pictures here. This is when he's older here. Uh, rather than you know enjoying the American retirement or the West retirement, uh, here he is. The picture on the right. Uh, he's at a friend's house in Lebanon during the Civil War. And uh, you can see bullet holes or shrapnel all over that chair that he's sitting on, uh, as well as the wall that was uh, of the of the house. There he is reading uh, his Bible. He's there to to, to serve his friend, uh, encourage him in the faith, as as they are there to be a light uh, in this uh, darkness. And how does he experience that? But look at the look at the picture there uh, on the left. Look at that smile. I mean, there's just deep joy in him. Here he is at, uh, it's a, in Gaza. It's a checkpoint that he's walking through. In the bags are Bibles and other resources that, he, again, he's taking to people. Um, and if you look at the, the, the left side, I don't know for sure. They don't talk about it in the picture. But I believe that's a soldier standing there with some weapon directed at him. Now, Brother Andrew in the picture is either totally oblivious to the weapon, (laughs) or perhaps he reminded himself that morning that Jesus is king, and being in God's will, bringing Bibles to those who need it, is the safest place on earth to be. So the worst thing they can do is pull the trigger, and I'll be with King Jesus. But I, I, lo- I love those pictures because here he is giving his life away, and there's a deep joy, and you can see that on his face there. Uh, he once said uh, later in life uh, there, that, that quote, Blessed are the radicals. In heaven there is one thing we will never be, uh, be sorry about, and it is that we have taken, been too radical on earth. We say, be careful, don't say that. Take risk, you should say. Uh, or uh, this was multiple accounts say that it, when people would ask him late in life, like, is there anything you regret, anything you would change, and he would always re- respond back the same way. If I could live my life over again, I would be a lot more radical, or he, would, or, or he would say I would take a lot more risk. That's the only thing I would change. Which <laughs> is great. Like when you read his story and you go, wow, okay, that, that, uh, that's, this is a different ballpark. But that's uh, Andrew in in a nutshell. We'll, we'll backtrack a little bit uh, to, to under, try to understand how did how did God work to develop this work in him. Sadly, due to time, we got to skip over his old, whole uh, pre-conversion days. Uh, but even there, God was working, using his personality that was just always thirsting for adventure. He he did he was in combat with the Dutch military and would wear this yellow straw hat just as a way of sort of taunting the enemy, but also like daring them to kill him. And just he just had this thirst for adventure that God used God sanctified it right and then used it for his mission and you just think about that if you've got kids that are rambunctious and you just want them to calm down may we just ask God God use that personality use that energy for your kingdom sanctify it Lord and shape it to use it for your glory yeah all right let's uh, let's think a little bit about how, how did God uh, do this work how did he shape this oh, I got to go past all these slides here all right So we'll start, uh, we'll actually go after he's converted. Uh, He gets converted uh, some early 1950s. he, He wanted to go to Bible school, but then he realized he would have to do 12 years of school because he only had a sixth grade education. He says, "Well, I'm not going to do that." He goes off to a mission school instead. Worldwide evan- evangelization crusade, the the WEC, and uh, he he does that. While his time there is ending, he realizes he can take the a trip, sort of a short term mission trip, to Poland in 1955 as a as a student. Now it was actually a tourist trip because they were trying to rally the communists were trying to rally up all the young people uh, to to join the communist party. <clears throat> But he says, well, this is great. I can go and I can see how the church is uh, in, in a communist country for really, relatively inexpensive. So he takes this trip to Poland. And then he was, right after that, he was able to go to Czechoslovakia for free, again, because of his, his situation. Uh, so he goes to check out uh, the church there. And uh, what he realizes is that the, that the church is there. It, it's alive, but it needs help. So he hadn't heard anybody talking about the church in communist countries. So he realizes that they're there. They're constantly under watch by the government. Uh, they constantly have informants coming into the church, acting like the church, but not the church, and quickly going and telling the government, which would round then uh, get people in trouble. Uh, they visited one church in one of his trips. Uh, Often, this far-off village that there was only one member in the church. It was a sweet old lady, and that 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 was the church. Just one person in the whole village. Um, there was uh, he would multiple times. There would be he would he would want to go to service, and it would take about an hour to an hour and a half or something like that for the whole church to gather because they would, they could only travel in groups, and they would do it at night, so they would, in groups of twos or threes. Uh, the, it's not obvious in the community what's happening. And uh, in one church, uh, they were sitting there. They, they announced him that he's here and he's going to share with them. And he was expecting, well, now we start singing. And then he realized, oh, this church isn't going to sing because that would be too loud and it would create, create too much commotion. So they, they, they couldn't sing there. Um, so he, just, he realized the church is here, but she's under a lot of pressure and she needs help. And so it was during one of these early trips here that uh, God uh, brought Revelation 3 2, uh, to his heart or to his mind. And that became part of his conviction, which is uh, awake, awake and strengthen what is weak and about to die or strengthen what remains and is about to die. And so he felt like it was his call to go and strengthen the church. She was alive, but she remains, but she's weak and we must strengthen her. Now, uh, as that developed, he realized two ways that he could be a part of this mission, how he could further this. How can he strengthen the church in communist countries? Well, the major thing he realized is that she lacks Bibles. The church is there, but she doesn't have the book. And Andrew was very very, um, committed to the word of God. He came to faith simply by reading the scriptures that his mom had given him. Uh, and that had a profound imp- impact on him. So he, when he's meeting the church with a lack of Bibles, he knew that uh, somehow i got to give Bibles to my brothers and sisters. One church he showed up uh, at in one of these early trips, and he realized uh, there would be, be a few people that would take the Bible, and they would hold it up like this, and then everybody would crowd around because they only had a few Bibles in the congregation. And so everybody would crowd in and so they could see the reading. <clears throat> Another church, uh, it was time for the pastor to stand up and Preach, and he had to step down, go and grab someone 's Bible, and then he was able to preach and he realized oh the, the pastor himself didn 't actually own a Bible; he had to borrow one every time it was time for him to preach, which obviously is problematic right the, if he's going to teach, he needs to be able to to read it regularly and such uh, in Moscow, uh, he was there, and uh, they, they they had a, a load of Bibles to bring, and he he saw this guy from Siberia and they they got to talking. And the the guy from Siberia, which is about 2000 miles to the west uh, or to the east, uh, says that he he had a dream recently. uh, And and the, the dream told him to go to travel to Moscow, where he'd be given Bibles. And so the guy is like, okay, whatever, because there's not a lot of Bibles in Moscow either. But he makes the trip, shows up in Moscow. And here, uh, Andrew comes from 2,000 miles the other direction with Bibles. Uh, and he, he's able to, give them to the, get them to the guy. Uh, but then he realizes that the guy says they have, their church is 150 people, and they don't have a single Bible in the whole church. So the church needed God's word. And so this drove Brother Andrew, I need to get God's word into the communist countries. And the second thing he realized uh, is just simply by being a ministry of presence. A constant thing he heard from them was they felt alone or they felt forgotten. And so uh, one, once he, he preached in the church and uh, he got down and one of the pastors said to him, he said, uh, Andrew, your presence with us is better than 10 of the best sermons. Just you being here means the world to us. And again and again throughout both of his books, uh, this theme keeps running through it, whether it's in communist countries or the Middle East. Just the church from, uh, like from the West here going and helping uh, just by being there uh, is a profound ministry. It makes me think of 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you remember uh, Paul saying, uh, you know, he, he tells Timothy, Timothy, you're aware that everyone in Asia, they deserted me, but not in Ines- Esiphorus. When I was in Rome, he searched for me, inquired, and he found me, and he often refreshed me. Just, just his, his, his presence there. I mean, you just think about like how often you're scared sometimes in the dark. Just one person, one person walking in the room with you, you feel safer, right? It's the ministry of presence that sometimes we discount. And this, this can be actually one of the profound benefits of short-term uh, mission trips and such. But so for Brother Andrew, a lot of what he was doing is, I'm just going to take the Bible with my brothers and sisters and pray with them. Let them know that I care. And that was the ministry. And that's why he says, anybody can do this stuff. You don't, you don't need a, a seminary education. You don't need to be able to go preach. You, need to, you don't need to be able to do all sorts of stuff. Just go. If you can get on a plane and show up, care for them, pray for them. Tell them they're not forgotten. That is a ministry in itself. But the big question for him is obviously how. I mean, this is going to be dangerous work. How is he going to get Bibles into communist country? Uh, and this is... Uh, where Philippians two comes in, he's he's in Poland in his first trip, and he's just sort of overwhelmed by the the sheer numbers of the Communist Party. All these young people anti God, thinking they don't need God anymore, and saying we're going to change the world. He just he felt very intimidated. He's the only Christian he knows at, at the time uh, when he's when he shows up there, and he's got this little uh, I think it's just the New Testament that he's got, and he says he's, he he holds it to his chest, and he's reminded. Of philippians two ten and 11 that therefore god has exalted him and given him jesus the name above every name and that every knee shall bow before jesus and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord and then he said uh, he then he looked up back up at the at those communist knees and he says even those knees will bow before my king jesus i i, I wanted to practice a dutch accent and i it doesn't sound anything like it. <laughs> but uh, that, he said, I, when, when, I, when that verse came to my mind, and I looked at their knees and said, even their knees will bow, it took away all fear. It just took away all fear, because my King Jesus is reigning, and everyone shall bow and shall confess, and what's the worst they can do to me? And it took away all fear, and that drove him. And that seems to have stuck with him through the, uh, through the decades to get him through. And I'm running out of time here, so uh, that's just sad, but we, we're going to have to wrap up soon here. Uh, but let me tell you two really quick stories, because 1957, finally he's able to get into communist country, because um, that was two years later then. Uh, he was able to get a visa, and he's going to go into Yugoslavia. Now this is go time, right? He's, he's got to cross the border with these Bibles. He's got this now blue Volkswagen. How is he going to get these across? And he realizes, you know, any kind of true inspection of the vehicle is going to be super obvious. So then uh, he prays what he calls the smuggler's prayer. And he, he, he would say, Lord, I'm bringing in copies of these, these scriptures to your children. Lord, when you were on earth, you made the blind eyes to see. Now I need you, Lord, to make the seeing eyes blind. And I need you to do it now. And just again and again and again, uh, this would happen. He tells a story of once he's at uh, four hours, he's at the, the border patrol. There's two guards at the front of the car. There's two cars, uh, two, two guards at the, behind the car. There's two guards underneath the car. And two guards standing right before him looking at his expression. Just to, and he's like, what, what are you going to do? Your only hope is that King Jesus is reigning, right? That's it. And that God's got to blind those guards' eyes to the Bibles right now. Uh, at one point, uh, he, he gets nervous, uh, and he's, he's a little weak on faith because the, the cards in front of him, they were doing these really deep inspections, a half hour, 40 minutes, one was over an hour. He's coming up next, and he's, he's got this weakened faith, and he realizes, like, I'm not trusting the Lord. So he grabs some Bibles, and he puts them on the seat next to him and says, all right, Lord, now I know only you could do this. And sure enough, God blinded the the, the guards, actually, he pulls up and the guard just puts his knee against the, the door and says, nah, you keep going forward. And that was it. So that, that's the, the type of man he was. Let me do one final story as we move to the Lord's Supper. I feel like this is a fitting illustration uh, for the Lord's Supper. Uh, he had found out, this is older in age now, that the Hezbollah had taken some hostages. Hostages, And one of the, the men that they had uh, as a hostage for three years, uh, his, his health was deteriorating. Uh, he was a strong Christian man. He had a wife and children back home. And uh, Brother Andrew catches wind of this. And he says to himself, you know, I, my kids are all grown. My house is in order. I'm going to go offer myself to this the Hezbollah, so he kind of talks through the his channels, and he's able to actually arrange a meeting with one of the leaders of the Hezbollah. And uh, he brings Bibles and such as normal, and he, they're talking. And he, he he brings up this hostage man, and uh, he, he he tells the the leader of Hezbollah like this man he's he's a, he's a Christian, he's got a wife and children at home. My house is in order, and. Uh, my children are all grown. You take me. You chain me. I think he was chained to a radiator. You chain me here, and you let this man go. And uh, the leader was so taken aback, like what? Because like, he was dead serious. He wasn't just messing around. He's like, why, why would you do that? And then he, that's where he's able to share. He's like, my King Jesus, that's what he has done for me. He has given up himself to bring me back to God and set me free. And therefore I have a love in me that is, is free to be able to, to give myself towards others. And this this totally shocked this man. Because like I've never heard, he said, I've never heard of a Christianity like that. And brothers and sisters, this this is the king that we serve. Not only is that this king reigning, but Philippians says that he emptied himself and came obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the king we serve. It was victory through death. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let, us, let it remind us that not only is Jesus king, but it was through his death that he, be, he was given the, the office of the Son of God, taking that royal seat as king. And in his power and his grace, we have the privilege of shining his light in this world. If you're a follower of Christ today and you proclaim Jesus as Lord, you do bow the knee before him and say, Lord Jesus, whatever you can command me to do, I will do not perfectly, but directionally, like moving in that as much as we can with a repentant faith, uh, then we invite you to join us this morning. Please come in the middle or inside part of the aisle and then return to your seat and we will partake together. Paul tells us that as often as we drink of the cup and eat of the bread, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, which means death was not the end of him. Right? He is reigning as king. It was de- death to glory, and now he reigns and he is returning. And we celebrate that this morning. We proclaim the Lord's death, because now he's reigning as king, and he will consummate his kingdom one day. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. And in God's kindness, we have the privilege to be a part of the mission, to shine Christ's light to the world. This morning, as we partake of the, of, the, uh, of the cup here, let us not hear that as, now you must go shine the light, but now we can, because God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit, he's given us new hearts, and we get to be a part of this great mission that God is on, to spread the light of Christ to the world. May God empower us to do so. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, as often, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink of it.